Yeah. Psalm 43. Great psalm. It's a psalm about those very dark times in life that we go through. And it appears like God is just not listening to us when we pray. We cry out to Him, and it's almost like no response. He seems distant. And many times we go through those dark times and we feel that God has forgotten us. And we can't get online, we can't get on track with God. It's a, a condition that the old mystics used to call the dark night of the soul. Many of us have gone through it. I know in my life it has been one of my biggest battles. And it's a puzzling condition. It's a, it's a very difficult condition because we wonder why it's happening. Especially if we are children of God, why is this happening to us? It's like the old saying, if life is a bowl of cherries, why am I living in the pits? <laughs> it's difficult because we live for God, we serve God, we pray and we cry out to God, but the situation just does not lighten up. And we're wondering, what's going on here? What have I done wrong, so to speak? And that's what the psalmist is going through here in Psalm 43, the dark night of the soul. And as we look at this psalm, we're going to see that there's conflicting emotions. And these emotions that conflict and they're struggling with, these are emotions that Christians have gone through throughout history. It's not unique just to the psalmist. And I'm sure it's a, a similar emotions that each and every one of us here have felt. So I wanted to look at Psalm 43 and, and, and learn from the psalmist, how do we deal with these dark times? How do we get through these times? Because we will, if you haven't gone through it, you will. Um, and if you have, you'll go through it again. And when, uh, as we look at this, I want to, uh, we're going to look at the first two verses, then the second three. The, that's how it's broken down. And in the first two verses, what we see is a divided heart, because that's what dark times do. It divides our heart. Notice what he says. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. For you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? So what we see in these two verses is mixed emotions. Verse 1 describes what's going on in the psalmist's life. And then in verse 2 describes what's going on in his soul as he's going through with, uh, in his life. Now there are different reasons why we face despair and get discouraged. In verse 1, we see one reason is evil people. Ungodly people. They are threatening his life. Uh, in some way, they're making his life miserable, and it's difficult for him to deal with. And he prayed for vindication from his enemies who were ungodly. They were deceitful. They were unjust. And he asked God to plead his case in their presence. So what he wanted here is he wanted God to work in this situation where he would be his judge, examining him, and his defense counsel to defend him. And he wants God to do this against these ungodly people who are coming against him. And he prays for God to rescue him from the, these deceitful, wicked people. So many times it is wicked people that cause these dark times to come upon us. And it's not unusual. We know this from Scripture. It's not unusual for those who try to live godly lives to, to, to be unjustly accused and attacked by ungodly people. Jesus himself in John chapter 15 said that we don't belong to this world. We belong to Him. 
right? We, we've trusted him, we belong to him. And then he made this statement, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So it's not unusual for the ungodly, for this world to persecute those who live for Jesus Christ. In fact, we should expect it. It, it, it's, it should be common. I would say it's very unusual, very unusual for a person to not be depressed when they are persecuted by the ungodly. It's going to happen. Jesus tells us that. Now, there are other causes of discouragement and depression as well, not just evil people. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells us, uh, gives us several. He says there's temperament. Some people are just more inclined to depression than others. He said there's physical condition. Adverse health can cause us to be discouraged and depressed. I've met several that way that are very depressed over their physical condition. Another is a downtime uh, after a, a, a great blessing, like Elijah. Remember when he had that great victory on, on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal? Well, a short time after that, he's crying out to God, the Lord, just kill me, take my life. Very common to, that it happens. And then, of course, there's the attacks of Satan. And one of his strategies is to get us to take our eyes off of God. And when we do that, we begin to see the darkness and we begin to get discouraged and depressed. He does those things. And no doubt... Um, Many of you have, uh, have experienced that. And then there's also, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, there's simple unbelief, lack of faith, where we doubt. And when that happens, we begin to get discouraged and depressed. And no doubt there's also um, other things you can add to, uh, to this list as well. You know, disappointment in life, personal failure, burden of getting old. We were talking about that just a few moments ago. All of these things can really weigh heavy on us and get discouraged to the point of depression. So there's different things in life that cause those dark times of the soul. The psalmist here is going through that time. I believe that the answer is the same in every situation. But in this particular case, it's because of evil people. But I want you to look at verse 2. Because it talks about what's going on in his soul. And the most striking thing is that his soul is divided. You're going to see this also in verse 5. Notice what he says in verse 2. His heart is divided between saying and the, in the first line. He says, you are the God of my strength. So he acknowledges God as the God of his strength. But notice what he says right after that. Why have you rejected me? You see how his soul is divided. You're the God of my strength. You have rejected me. And then he adds, why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? That's what those dark times do. They cause us to have divided souls. And so his prayer here is based on the confidence that God is his strength. And that word strength actually in the Hebrew means a fortified place. So what he is saying is that God is this strong fortified place in which he takes refuge. But then he's troubled as God, I'm taking refuge in this strong fortified place, but yet I'm being attacked. I should be protected. So it seems like God has rejected him and this has caused him great distress. And I want you to notice that word, reject, in, in verse 2, rejected me. The word rejected has the connotation of a stench, of being rancid. And so what he is saying is that I've taken refuge, but you're treating me as if I'm this rancid stench. You know, when you come across such a stench, you sort of turn away. That's how he's describing himself and what he feels in this darkness. It appeared to him that God turned on him as though he was rancid. 
So part of his heart, it seems, is right now taking refuge in God. As we read through this, he says, you are my refuge. But he's perplexed why God would allow his enemies to get the upper hand on him. God, why am I going through this? Why are they get, taking advantage of me? Why have you rejected me? So what he's saying is, why do you turn your back and let the enemy make me miserable? And we could say that about any issue that causes us depression. God, why have you just turned your back on me and allowed this situation, this person, this circumstance to tear me down so that I feel like I'm overwhelmed with darkness in my soul? It happens. How many times we have fled to God? And it just seems like no matter how hard we cry out, it's like the prayers hit the ceiling and come back down. And we feel overwhelmed. And the psalmist is saying, Lord, I fight to you now, but you have given me over to scorn and the threat of my enemies. It's a difficult situation. And just as he was perplexed, we get perplexed. Why would God turn his back on those times of seeming depression and discouragement, this heavy weight. And that term there for mourning, when he talks about how I go mourning because of the oppression, means to grow dark. And so the psalmist is saying that he has this sense of darkness all around him. Have you ever been there where you just feel like everywhere, it's just like, oh, it's a heavy burden. It's this darkness. I know I've been there at times, and you begin to scratch your head and wonder, why? Why is this happening? And it's not an uncommon condition for Christians today, especially in the dire darkness of this world. I mean, uh, it's always been part of the Christian life. Even Paul went through it. You, you see, there are times where Paul was greatly discouraged and depressed. It's not uncommon for Christians to go through this. And you have a divided heart. I know many of I, I I'm not a prophet, but I would venture to say that many of us have been there before. I know I have where you begin to question, does God even hear me? Is it even worth praying? I remember one time, I was a second year of seminary. Our first daughter was born. She had colic. I don't wish that on the worst enemy. I, I, it was the most ruthless thing. The poor little thing couldn't help, but I would be up till two o'clock walking and pacing the floor. My poor wife couldn't do it. And then I had to get up and be in class by 8 o'clock and then go to work. It was just the hardest thing. And it got to the point one time where I cried out to God. He didn't listen. And I just, I shook my fist at God, literally. Now, I'm in seminary studying God. But I shook my fist at God and I said something that I wouldn't have, shouldn't have said. And I just said, forget you. I'll never pray to you again because if you're going to treat me like a, like a monkey, then forget you. I don't need you. I literally said those words to him. Didn't take long for God to get my attention afterwards, and then God began to really answer. But I got to that point of such darkness and depth of depression. Praise God for His grace. I praise Him for His grace. So it's characteristic of the human condition that in healthier or in yeah in, in healthy times and happy times, it's easier to be outgoing and positive in your life. But man, when it's dark, it's hard to endure. Despair destroys the positive. It, it destroys the outgoing view of life. You really don't want anybody in your life. It, it's just, it's, it's overwhelming. And that's what the psalmist was going through. And I'm, I know I've been through it, and I'm, I'm, again, as I said, I'm not a prophet, but I, I would assume that many of you have gone through it or are going through it now. And so we ask the question, when those times come, how do we deal with this? 
The world, of course, has its cures, right? Uh, some people try to escape the depressing realities in their lives through divorce, excessive entertainment, frequent vacations, some pop pills, some are on habit-forming drugs, others like to drink and get drunk to not feel the pain, and the list goes on and on and on and on. There's different ways that the world wants to deal with this, these dark times. But I want us to look at what the psalmist does. And of course, he begins by crying out to God, Vindicate me, O Lord, and plead my case. And one thing I want you to see here is that it's not wrong. It's not wrong to pray for God to defeat those enemies in your life. Sometimes people feel like, I have to go through this, so I'm not going to pray that God delivers me. No, it's okay to ask God to deliver you from these times. It's not wrong to pray that God rescue us from our enemies. It's not wrong to ask God to rescue us from these dark, depressing times. Uh, it's not wrong to ask God to rescue us from even disasters such as hurricanes or tornadoes or wherever that may, whatever it may be. It's not wrong to pray for those things. It's right and it's good to pray for deliverance, for rescue, for uh, healing. And so in his lament, he asks God to act as his defense counsel and to take up his case. And in fact, the way the word is worded, um, he's, he's talking about any enemy, not just political enemies. In other words, all of his issues. God, deliver me from all of this. And so he, he cries oh, to God for rescue. And that's basic. That's that's very basic. But what I want you to see here is that this is not the main thing he does. We need to understand this because this is where it gets critical. This is not the main thing he does. Yes, he does this. He asks God to deliver him, and that's important. But he does two other things that are far more significant, far deeper than just crying out to God to deliver him. And the reason why I say that they are deeper and more significant is that the desire for vindication, the desire for rescue from the enemy can be a purely natural desire. Right? What I mean by that is that those who are non-Christians would, would want the same thing. They want to be delivered. They want to be rescued from those dark times in their lives. It's a very natural response. Everybody wants to be vindicated and rescued from their enemies. Right? I mean, I, I don't know of anybody that says, No! Give me in the hands of the enemies. I love this. No. Everybody would want that. There's nothing godly about that in and of itself. So it doesn't take a spiritual work in a person's life to make them want their enemies to stop torturing them. So that can be purely natural. But the other two things that the psalmist does are not natural. They're supernatural. They're not something anyone would do without the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. So these things are more, uh, more significant. They are deeper than just a mere desire to be vindicated. In verse 3 and 4, first he speaks to God and asks for God to lead him, not mainly out of trouble, but to God. We'll see that what that means in a minute. And then in verse uh, 5, he speaks to his own soul. He calls on his soul to hope in God. Now these are two things that the devil or the natural man would never do. They would never do this. They are not things the natural fallen self-empowered human being even thinks about. But this is what he does, and they are very significant. So I want us to look at verses 3 through 5 and see how these two things play out. Before we look at the details, I want you to see the steps in detail, uh, the, the two steps, 
before we look at these two steps, I want you to see the progression here in verses 3 through 4. Look at these verses and notice what he says. He goes from your holy hill, which is Jerusalem, right? Then he moves to your, holy, uh, to your dwelling places, which is the temple. And then he moves to the altar of God. And then to God. You see the progression? To Jerusalem, the temple, the altar, to God himself. Note that progression of how he moves through this. And so the true worshiper, the true follower of Jesus Christ is satisfied with neither a geographical location like the, 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 the temple and the, and the city, nor a building nor an altar. A follower of Jesus Christ will be satisfied with only one thing. That's God himself. God himself. That's what he's praying for. So he has to get through to God himself. And this is the aim in every dark time in life. We want to get through to God himself. It's not just deliverance, but we want to get to him. We want to know him. So this should be our aim. And keep that in mind as we work through these two steps. Now, let's look at verse 3 and 4. Well, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. And so the first thing we see is he cries out to God. But what I want you to see is what he cries out to God for. Right? So he cries out to God. In the midst of darkness, he understands he desperately needs to be close to God. That's what he's seeking. So he prays God's light and truth will lead him back to God's dwelling place, his holy hill. Which, of course, as I said, is Jerusalem. And back then, that was the uh, holiest place you can go to, was to Jerusalem. And then to, uh, it sat on the hill. And then you go to the, temp, uh, the tabernacle or the temple, depending on the time period. But what I want you to see is, look at, when you look at this prayer, notice what it reveals about this psalmist as he's praying. Look at this. He had a rich spiritual experience. His vocabulary... His view of reality, the sequence of his thoughts, the God-centeredness of his goal, the acquaintance with the, sec uh, the sanctuary, um, uh, the, 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 the emotional outcome that's anticipated, all of these things show that this was a man who has lived for God and knows God. And the reason why I bring that out is note that this is a man who is spiritually deep, and yet he is experiencing a dark time. It's not unusual for Christians to face these dark times. It, it, it's a, a man here that, that has this uh, depth of feeling for God, and yet he still feels that God is distant at times. So it's not unusual. In fact, I believe that because of the world we live in, we should expect those times. And when we do, not look at it and say, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? It's not unique to any particular uh, Christian. And what's interesting is when you look at these verses as he's praying in verse 3 and 4, there's no mention of praying for vindication over the enemy. He did that earlier, but notice he's not doing that here. He's not saying, God, deliver me from these people. Deliver me from these enemies. That's not in view anymore for this psalmist. Something far greater is at stake. And that's what we have to learn here. There's much more important victory to be won than the victory over people or disaster or sickness or cancer, whatever it may be. Don't think of beating sickness or disease mainly as being healed. We have to see that there is a far more important thing. And what we see here, notice what he prays for in uh, the first part of verse 3, for spiritual light and truth. 
spiritual light and truth. He confesses that he needs God to lead the way. Why? Because he's in the dark. So he says, God is his refuge. Makes that statement clear. But he feels forsaken. He feels rejected. But see, he knows better. He knows better. He knows that God will always be present. That's his promise. In Psalm 18.30, we are told, He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. So the psalmist knows that God hasn't rejected Him. The psalmist knows that God is still present. He knows that. We know that. We know from the promises that God will what? Never leave us nor forsake us. We know that. Right? But the psalmist can't help himself. That's how he feels. How many times I've heard people come to me, and you probably experienced this yourself, uh, but they point to their head and they say, you know, I know that God is true here. I know that. I know He's true. I know He's the refuge. I know that He is present. That's His promise. I know that in my mind. I know He loves me. But then they point to their heart and say, I just can't feel it. It's just not here. So it's here, but not here. You ever been there? Where you know it, but why can't it get here? And that's what the psalmist is going through. God is my refuge. But man, I just can't feel it. I feel like he's distant. It's important for us to understand this concept and why he prays the way he does. So God is his refuge objectively, but subjectively he feels that God has rejected and forsaken him. So he cries for light and truth. Now, light and truth here are figuratively seen as a search and rescue party. In other words, he's lost in the darkness, and he needs that light to carry him through. So he's asking God for this search and rescue. And the reality is that to live in God's light and cherish his truth is the way through life's difficulties, through the darkness of those difficult times. Now, that term truth there refers to faithfulness, reliability, uh, stability. So when he's asking God for truth, he's not saying, Lord, give me your word, although that's there. He's talking about your faithfulness, your reliability. See, in the darkness of our adversities, he is asking God to remain faithful to his promises. God, you made this promise. So I'm asking for that truth. And so... And the psalmist asks God for his light, for his truth, that he remains reliable, that he remains faithful, that he gives him this light that's so important. If only God will send these two personified expressions of his love to guide him back, that's what he's praying, then he's going to experience restoration. And so what does he need in the midst of this darkness? He needs spiritual light. What do we need in the midst of darkness? We need spiritual light. More than deliverance, we need spiritual light. See, that's what's important here. We want deliverance. We want rescue, and that's okay. But understand there's something much deeper because you can still be rescued and remain in that darkness. So he's praying for light. He's praying for truth because that's what he needs more than that deliverance. And so light would bring him out of the darkness, but where would it lead him? Right into the divine presence, right into the presence of God. So in the midst of darkness... It's not just deliverance we need. We need what? The very presence of God. And that's what he's praying for. That's why I say this is not natural. The natural person doesn't pray, God, deliver me and bring me into your presence. No, he just wants deliverance. 
But the psalmist realizes, I, more than deliverance, I need this light that leads me to the very presence of Almighty God because I don't, what I need more than anything right now in the midst of all this depression is the very presence of God. That's the answer to those dark times. It's God's divine illumination that is necessary for us to understand His truth. And so praying that God would rescue him, not from his enemies, but from a far more dangerous enemy is what's at stake here. Yes, he's got trouble with the enemy, but there's something much deeper. And we all face this every day. A darkness that causes the world to look much more attractive than it is and causes the greatness and the beauty of God to fade out of sight. Please understand that happens every day. When we go out into this world, what do we see? We see advertising. We see all kinds of things. We need this. We need that. You're special. You're this. It's all about building everything up into this world. And the purpose of all of that is to take your eyes off of God. Because when you take your eyes off of God, now you are in the darkness. And the psalmist is writing and crying out and praying, Lord, give me that light and that truth that would lead me to you and not to the darkness, not to this world. See, for us as Christians, well, for, yes, for us as Christians, especially in this world, there is an attack by the enemy that is very subtle. He wants you to take your eyes off of God, and he'll throw in front of you whatever he has to to get you to take your eyes off of God. Because when you take your eyes off of God, what do you have left? If God is the light, and you take your eyes off God, what do you have? Darkness, and that's what he wants. That's what he wants. And that's why he's praying for this light and this truth. Because he knows that's the, that, that's the issue, more than deliverance from the enemy. And see, this darkness should frighten us. This darkness that we could easily fall into his trap, that causes us to look at the stuff of this world, the things of this world, the events of this world, get so caught up with that that we take our eyes off of God, that's a darkness that should cause us to fear. Because then we truly are in darkness. So the psalmist prays, send me light. Send light to my soul, O God. And of course he adds truth, because when light comes in, that's what, we, that's what we have. We have the truth. And truth is what's real, what's substantial. So let me see the true substance and reality of things, is what he's praying. God, give me this light and help me to see the reality of things. Help me to see you. Help me to know you more. Oh God, banish illusions from my heart. And we should be praying this constantly because what we have in this world and all the stuff, it's all illusions. It promises you happiness and contentment. And what does it give you? Heartache. It does. It gives you heartache. My brother doesn't know the Lord. Pray for him every day. Filthy rich. Miserable life. Because he's fallen for the trap that the more you have, the better it is. Not true. And I know of Christians who have fallen for the same thing. I remember a young man one time just got married. They had a little girl. Bought this brand new big house, furniture for all of the rooms, new car for him and for his wife. And he's struggling with debt. And so he's talking to me, what do I do? I said, it's simple. Sell it all and get yourself out of debt. He says, no, I wanna, I'm going to declare bankruptcy. Then that way I can keep it. I said, no, but that's stealing. The point is, is that he, big house, brand new furniture, new cars. I'm there. Look at me. Made him miserable. Ended up 
down the road that the, they divorced, the child, the, the, the daughter went and lived with mom and dad. Because see, he fell for the trap. He fell for that darkness that all of this stuff will satisfy you. And I'm here to tell you, you were not created by God to enjoy all of this stuff more than God. That's the darkness. That's the darkness. And we're all prone to that if we're not careful. And that's why we pray, God, banish these illusions from my heart. Send the light and the truth. Help me to see what's real so I don't fall for these traps and end up in darkness. So he prays for this light and truth because it will lead him to the answer. There's a second thing he does in his prayer, which involves the cross of Christ. If we see this in the second part of verse 3, first part of verse uh, 4, this, this light is going to lead him to this holy dwelling, the sanctuary and the altar of God. Notice what he says. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God. Now remember what the altar of God was. It was the place where the blood of animals were sacrificed for what purpose? Forgiveness of sin, right? For cleansing, right? This is where God forgave the sins of his people. And so the point here that he's making is that the light of God leads him to the truth of his sinfulness and takes him to the place of atonement and forgiveness. It's very easy for us to forget the cross when we are in darkness and we're self-focused. It's very easy to forget. Our altar is Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, standing before the throne of God. That's what we have to focus on. Like the song says, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. That's our altar. Christ, our high priest. And so the light of God that leads us today is the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. That's what we cry out for. That's what we need. It leads us to the cross. And so it leads us to Christ. It leads us to, if you want to call it the altar, the cross, whatever. It leads us to his completed work that restores us. It's here where our hearts are further illumined to see the true reality. Think, uh, think of it this way. The ultimate, only ultimate reality is seen through the cross. Apart from the cross, we don't see ultimate reality. We may think we have reality, but apart from the cross, we don't see the ultimate reality. And that's why he prays this way and leads him to the cross. There we see our wonderful forgiveness. It's at the cross we see our blessed hope. It's there at the cross that we see that God is truly sovereign over all things and we could rest there at the cross, knowing that he's done all the work. So in the midst of despair, we need to see the hope of our redemption. And where do we see that? At the cross. The sacrifice that Jesus Christ made. And so he prays for a spiritual light that leads him to the cross, and there he sees the reality. But notice the next step of his prayer. The last part of verse 4. Or, I'm sorry, the first part of verse 4. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. Notice where all this leads to. He wants to see God. He wants to meet with God. And that phrase, exceeding joy, is emphatic in the Hebrew. It stands out. It refers to great happiness, even to the point of holding a feast and a celebration. My exceeding joy. And so it's, it's being glad or joyful with the, whole, with the whole disposition. So remember, he's in darkness, but he wants to be led to the very presence of God so that even in the midst of darkness, there's great joy, great delight. So the final goal of life is not the forgiveness of, or any of God's gifts. The final goal of life is God himself. 
and we experience him as our exceeding joy. That's what he does. So think about, you open up this, this psalm and he's in darkness. It's miserable, depression. Notice what he's crying out for. God's ex the exceeding joy. That's the answer when it comes to, or one of the answers to when it comes to our, our darkness. The Hebrew reads, literally, if you were to take it uh, uh, word for word, it says, God, the gladness of my rejoicing. God, the gladness of my rejoicing. God is himself the heart of our joy. Understand, that's why we were created. We were created to enjoy God. In fact, apart from God, there is no true joy. The so-called happiness that people have in this world is not true happiness. It's all short-lived. But we were created to find joy in God and God alone, no matter what the circumstances are. Because we were created in his image, right? We were created in his image. Where does God find his greatest joy? Remember what he said, this is my beloved son in whom what? I take great delight. If God finds delights in his son, if God finds delight in himself, where are we going to find delight? In him. And that's what the psalmist is praying for. That light and that truth that leads me to the cross that ultimately brings me to your very presence. Because it is there that we find the joy, the exceeding joy that he needs. So God is himself, the heart of our joy. In the midst of uh, all rejoicing over all the good things that God has made us, he must be the gladness of our joy. Psalm 1611, one of my favorite verses, says, In your presence is fullness of joy. No, it's not just joy, but fullness of joy, overwhelming joy. So, in your presence is fullness of joy. At, right, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Great verse. That's where joy is found. And so the psalmist knows no higher aim for his longing than to be where the fountainhead of this exultant joy is, and that is in God's presence. Psalm 36, verse 8 and 9 says, They drink their fill of the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Think how amazing this is. Here's a man threatened by enemies and feeling the danger of his adversaries. Yet he knows that the ultimate battle of his life is not the defeat of these enemies. It is not escaping natural catastrophe. It's not being healed from sickness and from his emotions. The ultimate battle is... Will God be his exceeding joy? That's the battle. And it's the same battle we wrestle whenever we go through those dark times of depression and discouragement. Will God be my exceeding joy as I go through this darkness? That's the greatest battle. And that's why he prays the way he does. We must understand that this is the ultimate battle in everything we do. Will God be the ultimate joy? Will he be my exceeding joy? And then you look at the last line of, of verse 4. He says, Upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. He shows it. He shows it. He's excited. He finds the joy. And he says, When I find that joy, then I will worship you. I will praise you. See, Authentic joy in God will always, 
always overflow with praises. You can't help yourself. True joy, you're going to shout your praises. And I'm not saying you have to walk down the street shouting vocally, but your heart will shout praises to God when you have that authentic joy. You can't contain yourself. And remember, as I said at the very beginning, this is the prayer of a divided heart. Remember? The psalmist would like to know a constant, uninterrupted experience of God as his exceeding joy. We all would. But in reality, there are times when he feels forsaken. But he knows in his head, God has not forsaken him because God cannot lie. But it sure feels like he, ha he has. So his deepest strategy to escape this darkness, to escape these dark emotions, this dangerous condition, is to pray, Oh God, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God. And then I will go to you, my exceeding joy. And then I will declare your praises. That's how he prays during a time of incredible discouragement. Not just, God, deliver me from this, but God, I need you. I need to see your light. I need to see you as my exceeding joy. I need to experience that. I need to sense that. I need to be filled with that. Because without that exceeding joy, what do you have left? An empty heart. So he knows the danger here. It's not physical. It is spiritual. And so in these verses, 3 and 4, we see how he prays. But I want you to see the second thing that he does here to overcome this in verse 5. Notice what he says. Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. What does he do? He preaches to himself. He preaches to himself. That's so important. Question, why am I downcast? Answer, hope in God. He's preaching to himself. And the term when he says, why am I downcast, is heavy despair. The Hebrew defines the the Hebrew word can be interpreted as a heavy despair. It describes a great murmuring, a tumult going inside. He's struggling inside. So he preaches to himself. He commands his soul, soul, hope in God. Hope in God. In other words, have confidence in the Lord. Rather than focusing outwardly, rather than focusing on the circumstances that are all around, on the enemies or whatever, he says, look upward, hope in God. He's telling himself this. He's preaching this to himself. Hope in God. Nothing is more important in your mind than preaching the gospel to yourself. Every day. <coughs> Preach the gospel to yourself. Preaching hope when all of your circumstances say there is no hope. No, you preach hope anyway. Because we know the truth. Right? He commands his soul to hope in God. Have confidence in God. And so each of us in this room this morning need to become preachers. Preachers to ourselves. I'm not saying that you have to stand up in front of people. I'm not saying you have to walk down the road and say, Soul, hope in God. No, I'm not saying that you have to preach it out loud. But you have to preach to your soul every day. Every day there should be that comment or that constant uh, sermon that you preach to yourself. Very important. Martin Lloyd Jones 
tremendous man of God, uh, was at the Westminster Chapel in London. He dealt with this issue in a series of sermons that has um, uh, been published into a book called Spiritual Depression. I have the book. It's a great book. Highly recommend it. Uh, he, he's, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. But he first deals with the greatest need in the church. And he says the greatest need in the church is joy. It's joy. Because he says too many are living life without any joy. And it shows. He says that's the reason why a lot of people in the world look at the church and look at people and say, why would we want to be like them? Have you ever heard people say, why would I want to be a Christian? You guys are so boring. It's like a knife to my heart. But then I have to realize, yeah, when you look at the average Christian, no wonder. Think about who has the greatest hope. What does the world have to look forward to? Nothing. What do we have to look forward to? Everything. So regardless of what goes on in this world, we should be the most exciting people in the world. But man, we sometimes we act like, oh, I agree with Dr. Lloyd-Jones. We're some of the most, sometimes we make up some of the most miserable people when we should be the happiest people, regardless of what the circumstances are. Remember, this life is a vapor. Then eternity hits. And one moment into eternity, you're going to forget about this life because you're going to be consumed with Him. And let me tell you, there is no such thing as um, sadness in heaven. We have so much to look forward to. We should be the most exciting people. We should, we should be the happiest people. We should have these smiles constantly so that people ask us, what's the difference? I had the privilege of telling a guy one time, he was, I was mowing my yard in the heat, full of sweat. Some guy's trying to sell stuff, and I, and I stopped more. He came to me, he, I said, look, I'm not interested. I said, okay, that's cool, and we started talking. He says, you know, most people I go visit, they're just miserable. What's, your diff what's, what's unique to you? And I said, what makes me different? I love God, and he takes care of me. He looked at me and says, amen, and he walked away. <laughs> and then I went on and mowed the yard and sweat, smiling. <laughs> but the, we need to be the happiest people. Yet we're not. We allow our circumstances to dictate our lives. And I believe it's, too, it's very dangerous when we do that. And so he makes the claim that this is the reason why large numbers of people have ceased to be interested in Christianity. And so he makes a great deal of this point in this book. It's a great uh, um, uh, section. And he stresses that talking to ourselves rather than allowing circumstances to talk to us is the very essence of wisdom in this matter. He's right. We need to talk to ourselves. I'm not saying you have to talk to yourself out loud. People might think you're crazy. Or you can talk to yourself out loud. It doesn't matter if you want to. But preach to yourself constantly. It is a case of the mind speaking to the emotions rather than the emotions dictating to the mind. And too often that's what we do. We allow our emotions to dictate what our mind should be thinking and doing. And then he addresses the issue of preaching to himself. And I want to quote this. He says, Have you realized that most of your happiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? I have to read that a couple of times. <laughs> I listen to myself more than I talk to myself. He goes on, take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You're not, you have not originated them, but they are talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself. 
is talking to you. I thought, that's an interesting concept. It's true. You wake up and thoughts are flying in already. You're talking to yourself. And then in referring to this man in Psalm 43, he talks about this man. He says, now this man's treatment was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. He quotes, why art thou cast, oh wait, why art thou cast down, O my soul, he asks. His soul has been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. And I thought, there you go. Instead of listening, say, no, stop. I am going to preach a sermon to you. Hope in God. Hope in God. I love the way he, uh, he defines it. it, it, it I, I believe it is one of those things that will help us uh, in our lives every day. See, we have to turn on ourselves. We have to condemn those thoughts, exhort yourself and say to yourself, hope in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, this unhappy way. And this may sound unusual for many, but it, it is so critical for us to understand. What I, I attempt to do, I have a set of cards in my car that I, go, that I take to work every day. And it, they're verses. Right now I'm working through Psalm 103. And I take one verse a day, and I read it, and read it, and read it, and memorize it. And every time I drive from one facility to the next, I'm quoting it, and then I'm preaching it to myself, and I'm thinking, okay, this is the verse. How would you preach this verse, Frank? How would you do it? And so that's what I'm thinking on. I'm, preaching, I'm thinking, how would I preach it? How would I apply it to myself? And I do that for every verse, one at a time. Sometimes it takes two or three days for one verse. But it's the only way that I found for myself to draw my attention to preaching to myself. Otherwise, I get caught up with everything. I get caught up with politics. And boy, you want to rile me up, talk about politics. I, so I have to pray to God, Lord, no. As soon as politics comes in, I start quoting scripture and praying and saying, okay, no, I would, how would I preach this? I have to preach to myself constantly. I work in a world where there's a lot of lack of integrity. We'll leave it there. Uh, we'll leave it there. And it's hard. It eats away. And so there, I, I just have to, at times, I will stop when I pull up into a facility, turn the car off, bow my head, even in the heat, and I will pray, God, I need you because this is hard. I can't handle this. I can't. And I will pray. And there are times I, I cave in, and there are times I don't yet. We, we all fall. But the point is, is that we have to preach to ourselves. And I would encourage you, memorize Scripture. Even just one verse a day, one verse a week. But memorize and meditate and think on it. How does it apply? Break it down. How does it fit together? How does it apply in your life? What are you going to do today that reflects that verse? But preach to yourself this way. This, this is the only way you're going to find hope in a world as dark as ours. So we need to preach to our souls the truth of God's word. Please understand, if you don't preach to yourself, you will be preached to. Everywhere you go in this world, there's stuff preaching at you. You drive down the road, you've got signs everywhere. You go to stores, you hear people talking. You work with people, you hear them talking. All of that is messages coming at you. You're going to be preached at. But the psalmist is saying, preach to yourself. And don't listen to these other messages. Preach to yourself. That's what he had to do. So he had to tell his soul, preach to yourself. And we see this throughout the psalm. Psalm 42, just before, he does the same thing. 
O you downcast, O my soul. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Notice he's preaching to himself. And then in case he forgets, he starts in verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And do not forget any of his benefits. And then he gets into it. You know, he gets into it. Who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. And on and on it goes. So he's preaching to himself. Remember these things, soul. Remember what God has done, soul. Hope in God, soul. Praise God, soul. He's preaching to himself. Know how we need to preach to ourselves. Yeah, it sounds weird and sounds strange. But if we're not preaching to ourselves, you are being preached to by this world. And there are many messages. And the purpose of those messages is to take you down. To make you feel miserable. To leave you empty. To leave you hopeless. To leave you helpless. And that's why I say Bible study, memorization, meditation on God's word. All of these things are important. Because if not, we will be bombarded. Now, we, of course, come to church and we hear messages that are preached to us. And that's great. That's important. That's just one time a week. We need to preach to ourselves every day. Especially if you have issues driving. I'm always... Yeah, anyway, I, was, I struggle when I drive. My wife tells me all the time. So what I'm trying to do now more than, any, more than any, uh, anything is I'm preaching to myself more while I'm driving. It's helped, but there are times I just, and then I have to say, God, I'm sorry, I gave in. So preach to yourself. Preach to yourself. It's, it's incredible. And so the cure then in those difficult times, those times of darkness, those times of depression, those times where you feel like God is distant, is to seek God's face. Know Him. Cry out to Him. Preach to yourself so that our face will not be downcast. That's what the psalmist is doing here. And that's how he get, uh, gains victory. So in the midst of life's troubles, we have to direct our heart towards Jesus Christ, who is the anchor of our soul. We need to uh, praise Him. We need to worship Him. We need to cry out to Him. He alone is the Savior and sustainer of His people. And apart from Him, we'll be left in the darkness. This world is darkness. That's what preaches to you all the time if you yourself will not preach to yourself. So here's what you have. These two very practical steps when you feel forsaken. You pray to God. Remember what you pray for. For the light for the truth to lead us to himself, that we would see the gospel and find hope in the gospel. So we cry out to God for that. And secondly, we preach to ourselves, preach the gospel, preach the truth of God's word. Cry out to God, Lord, take me to yourself. So pray to God for the light you need in your heart to meet God and preach to yourself the truth that you need in your soul. It's the only answer that we can have. It's one thing to pray for deliverance, and I'm not saying we shouldn't, but don't make that your chief prayer. We want to pray that we meet God face to face. Remember when Moses prayed, God, show me your glory? We should cry out for the same thing. And then preach to ourselves. Preach yourselves. Hope in God. Trust in God. Look at the cross, the resurrection, His glory, His honor. Look at all these things. That's where we find our hope. Any questions or comments on any of this? I know I did all the talking. But anything that comes to mind as we think of this.
We don't. People, um, it's, uh, I was talking to my wife about this yesterday. The thing that I don't like is when people try to speculate and try to put a time. If the psalmist doesn't give us what's going on, then we don't know. And I believe God did that purposely because if there was a certain time when it happened to David, then we would just limit it to that time. The fact that we don't know means that this is universal for all time. It's true of anybody. It's true of David's time. It's true of our time. It's true throughout history. You know, Christians have gone through very dark times. This is the answer. And in fact, he does the same thing in Psalm 42. We just didn't have time to cover Psalm 42. Anything else? Wow. God really worked. Good. Let's pray then. Most high God, we bow in your presence and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth. We thank you for the light of the gospel. And God, we thank you for the promises that you have uh, given us in your word. We thank you that we are never alone. You will never leave us nor forsake us. And though there come times where we don't understand all that's going on, we know that you're still truthful, you're still faithful, still reliable. So God, we pray and ask that you do such a work in us that we would take heed to your word and what we've seen today. That indeed we would cry out to you in those dark times, not just for deliverance, but God, that we would meet with you, that your light, your truth would come and uh, rescue us, bringing us to yourself. And then God, teach us what it means to preach your word to our hearts. That every day, every day, Lord, we would preach your word deep to our souls, and that it would transform us so that rather than being downcast, we'd be those that would be excited about who you are so that people would ask, what's the difference? And we would be able to declare, you are the difference. So our God, come and do what only you can do in our hearts. Change us and transform us this way. As we go into this next hour and we gather with brothers and sisters to worship and praise you, our God, we pray that you prepare our hearts Fill us with your spirit in such a way that we would receive what is being preached. That we would sing songs from the depth of our hearts. That we would rejoice. That indeed our hearts, our souls would hope in you. We pray for Josie preaches. God, we ask that you would, through your grace, speak through him powerfully in our hearts. And if there be anybody there that does not know you, that this morning would be the day of salvation for them. But for those of us who do know you, May be a day of joy and delight as we hear your word. And Father, we also want to thank you for what happened to our nation in the reversal of Roe vs. Wade. How sad it's taken so long. But Lord, thank you. And I know that there are many who are in the darkness that are complaining. But God, I pray for those who are upholding this. We thank you for them and pray you give them the strength. How desperately we need your grace upon our nation. God, thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.